Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them all over there, all there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That was why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world, and there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Um, unlike Noah's story, this does not get a lot of attention. Noah's story is longer. It's told by more people more often, and if we're being honest, I just read you the whole thing. It's a short story, and it's odd. It's odd because it raises more questions than anything when you read it, and if that's one of the purposes of the scripture, man, this is getting it done. So when did this, when did this story happen? How long after Noah did this take place? Is there any time in history where we could pin down where something like this could have made sense. And why is God responding the way that he's responding? Did you see anything in there, as I read, that caused you to think, they're doing something that's not right, and God has to stop this? Uh, did you see his response? This goes counter to the things that we quote and tell each other. This is, this is the kind of stuff that we say to each other. We read this verse a lot. You've heard this, 1 Corinthians 14, For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. Disorder is often referred to, often translated, confusion. And so we would, have you ever said that to somebody else or heard that from somebody else? God isn't a God of confusion. He's not a God of disorder. And yet, we have a story where it appears God brings confusion into the story and causes problems. There's, there's a lot of stuff going on here, which raises a lot of questions. Now, like Noah's story, a lot of people have read this, and they've said, this is just another fairy tale. All it's trying to do is explain why we have a lot of different languages, just read past it and move on. And I want to tell you what, if you do that, it's your loss, because there is some incredible stuff that was intended to be communicated in this story. And if you treat it that way, you're going to miss out. So if, if I were to take this story a little more seriously, I would start paying attention to some of the details that get shared. And there's a bunch. There's a bunch of details in here that end up being really helpful. Let, let's list a few. One, it says this happens in the plain of Shinar. Uh, it doesn't give us any more than that there, but there are other books of the Bible that talk about the plain of Shinar and actually give some definition to it, and we have an idea of where this geography would have set. We know where the plain of Shinar, we don't know, like in past history, what they referred to as the plain of Shinar, but we have enough description to know it's in this area. 
We also know that they were using brick. That's an innovation. That, that, that helps us kind of date some things that were going on. And we also know they were building cities. So this is a group of people who were building cities. When you start taking these details and you put them together, you can come up with a pretty good idea of what was going on. And archaeologists have done that, and they've concluded this is talking about the ancient Mesopotamian area, the societies that grew up there, the Samaritan area, where um, this, this was um, dated maybe 3000 BC all the way up to 500 BC, th this group of people there, okay? So they have this sense that, okay, we know the area, so let's go look and see if we can ever find evidence for a great tower being built. But archaeologists came at this a little differently than you and I would because one of the problems is when we read this, we come at it from our very literal standpoint. Uh, by the way, I guess I should say, um, my name's Blair. We're in the book of Genesis. We're going really fast because we have a lot of stuff to cover. I'm glad you're here, okay? Um, is there anything else I left out? No, okay. We're back there, okay? We're, um, where did I stop when I got interrupted myself? Anybody can anybody remember? Okay. Oh, archaeologists. Thank you. Perfect. Okay. Um, so they they look at this and they would say, "Listen, we're very literal readers. We get that from our Greek background. There's a rational thinking that was passed down to us. We say what we're gonna think. We write what we think, and it's pretty precise that we're saying that. But these people did not think and talk this way." So let me give you an example right out of this story of how this is different. When I say a tower to the heavens, what comes to your mind? Now I'm going to put on the screen, over the centuries, artists have put this down, and you'll notice clouds in these. Artists have put down what their idea of the Tower of Babel was. So they kind of sketched it out. And almost all of them... In fact, everyone that I looked at would try to find a way to communicate to you that this thing was stretching into the clouds, going to touch the heavens. How many of you, when I said tower to the heavens, you pictured a skyscraper type structure? Anybody willing to admit that? Okay. Yeah. That's because that's who we are. That is not who they were who were saying this. And if they're talking about metaphors and images and pictures and they use that kind of language, let's go put ourselves in their shoes and ask what could they be communicating if they were talking about a tower to heaven? What might they be talking about instead? A temple. It might have some height. It might be a monument size. But they're referencing the purpose in their mind, they were going to build this structure that would give them access to the gods. They were going to find a way to connect with the gods. And so the tower to the heavens was like a conduit for them where they thought they would have this connection. And so when archaeologists understand that in that language, suddenly stuff starts to make sense. Because in the region that they would have gone and looked at, uh, let's go ahead and put up that map if you would. The map of that, uh, yeah, you might have to search for it. I'm probably out of order. It's okay. So this is the region, this is the region where um, these two rivers come together. This is why we think the, it's right here. The plain of Shinar was right in here. A lot of people think Ur 
is where this took place. They don't know for sure. Nobody really knows for sure where this took place. But this is the general area. And when you go looking for structures that were built as towers to the heaven, you're going to find them. They're called ziggurats. Ziggurats were built by these people from, nobody knows how early it started. I've seen everything across the board. 3200 BC, earlier even, some of them think. All the way up to 500 BC. So these are being built during the time of the Old Testament, no doubt about that. And they're big. They're big. Um, The one in Ur is 210 feet wide by 150 feet uh, long. This building is 125 by 125. So you get an idea of how big this is. Let me show you the one. Yeah, they found this one. This is a picture. Early excavation, they found this. This was the bottom side of this thing. They have since gone about reconstructing this to draw tourists in, and you can get a sense of how big this was. That's the first level. And so on top of this, they would start um, building more and more layers. They would build as many as seven layers And on top, they would put a temple-type structure that they would put a bed in. And they put a bed in so that the God that they were worshiping would come down and rest there. And you see these stairs? These stairs right here? They were built to there, and then there were successive stairs built all the way to the top. And they did that in a hope that when the God who was resting there felt rested enough, that maybe he would bless them by coming out of his temple walk down the stairs and mingle among us common people, blessing us that way. It was the whole point of what they were doing. They have found 19 of these structures. They have found writings that indicate that there were 16 others that were in existence at some time in history because they were referred to so openly in their writings. By the way, this is just a fun fact. You can go look this up. So you don't have to take my word for it. Uh, If you go do a little bit of work, you can find this. This ancient culture um, had a a writing, and uh, they put them on cuneiform. Cuneiform is a clay tablet. It's a wedge-shaped thing where they wrote their stuff in. And they have found um, on one of these cuneiforms this. This was actually written. I'm going to read it to you. Let's go ahead and put that up. The building of this tower highly offended the gods, In a night, they threw down what man had built and impeded their progress. They were scattered abroad, and their speech was strange. Heard anything like that before? (laughs) It's pretty cool, isn't it? This culture was talking about the story that we're talking about. And what what I kind of referenced last week is there's all kinds of Noah stories, too, and what happens is a as a culture takes and tells that story in a way that helps you relate to their God. And God said, look, this thing, this thing that happened, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you an understanding of what really went on. I, I, want you to, I want you to understand how to relate to me, so I'm going to tell you the story that you need to know. And so that's why this, this is really short, even shorter than what we have. But we have some more details that are going to help us understand why God thought it was really important to stack this story right after Noah. Okay? So that's what I want to get into. I want to um, find a way for us 
to take this somewhere where it'll make sense, all right? To do that, I think we have to acknowledge that there is something really odd that makes this story so interesting. It's verse 6. It says, if as one people, speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. I heard a lot of people talk about this little verse here and have concluded that for some reason God was intimidated by what mankind was doing and felt he had to step in and change the script. And I, I think, honestly, where this is coming from is because we have read this so literally, this is the way we do that. I mean, we can't help it. This is what we do. This is our culture. That we miss the other story being told in here. And so we, can, we make conclusions like, oh, it looks like God's like, actually trying to harm the progress of mankind, which again doesn't sync up with something that we say a lot in the scriptures. How many of you guys have ever quoted this one? This is Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. And yet it seems like God's opposed to them doing something great. So what is going on? And it's that idea that draws us into the conversation because I don't believe for a second that mankind has done one thing that has intimidated God. I don't think he has that concern on his mind. But I do think there is something happening and it's worth paying attention to because I don't, I don't know if you've ever gone through this or not, but you, have you ever gotten to a place in your life where you wondered in the back of your mind if God was messing with you? Like you had plans, you had goals, you were working towards those, stuff was going on with your family, and you kept running into roadblock after roadblock after roadblock, and the thought came to your mind, I wonder why God is messing with me. I wonder why God is frustrating my plans. And so we go to these sections of scripture, and we talk about how with Christ we can overcome we talk about how there's no confusion. And then we read something like this. And we wonder, does God toy with us? Does he mess with us when he doesn't like what we're doing? And it's not clear why? They're just building a tower, right? What's the problem? Well, if we're going to get to the bottom to understand this well, and there's a lot going on in that story, um, I've decided that the best place for us to do is to focus. Focus on the place the writer wants us to focus. Because like most of Genesis 1 through 11, this little story has a chiasm. A chiasm was a writing technique, a storytelling technique where you said things or wrote things in such a way that created a pattern. That pattern would point to a middle, and that middle was a place that the writer wanted you to pay attention to, that if you would, it didn't change the story, but it would help you understand it more fully. The chiasm in this section of scripture is its impossible to see in the English. It is only in the Hebrew language. The Hebrew language is written down in consonants only. 
So when you look at it, it's a whole line of consonants, and then above it are little symbols that they put that tell you how to breathe when you speak those, per, those consonants. And that's the word that comes out based on how you're breathing and all of that sort of thing. So in, in essence, they work in the vowels through breathing technique. But in this little section of scripture here, there is a pattern with the consonants. The words that they choose, the sentences that they start with, the phrases that they have, there's a pattern. And the pattern is, I'm going to forget it, N-B-L-H. Did I get it right? Ha! <laughs> All right? Just never know what's going to happen up in the gray matter, but this is right. There's a consonants go N-B-L-H. Halfway through the story, the consonants reverse. Very clear pattern, H-L-B-N. And at the center of this story is one little phrase. I want to read it to you. It's at the end of verse 4. It says, scattered over the face of the whole earth. Now, if you're paying attention in the story, the whole reason that they are building this monument, this tower, is to avoid being scattered over the face of the whole earth. And by the end of verse 9, it is the very thing that God does that changes this story. So it is indeed central to what's happening. This Everything is happening because of whatever it means for them about being scattered over the whole earth. Their fear of it, their desire not to do it, be involved with it. So here's what we're going to do. Go back to the text... And start reading through it again. And this time, ask yourself, what do I see here that's about scattering? What, what would draw my attention into this story? If they're really concerned about this, what should I pay attention to? What might be going on? And here's a few things I want to suggest. I want to take you back to Genesis 1.28. God has just created mankind, and he says this. He blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Now he goes on to say more about ruling over fish, all of that sort of stuff. When God says, I want you to fill the earth and subdue it, do you think the choice for them to settle and to not want to be scattered is being obedient to God? Something is clearly off. For them, this idea that they would go out is not something that appeals to them. And so they have decided, ah, we're, we're not going to obey God on this one at all. Now, there's something else that's really kind of interesting when you consider this whole scattered concept, too. Up to this point in the book of Genesis, every story has been about an individual. Got Adam and Eve. We've got Cain. We've got Noah. Can you please tell me who the main person in our story of the Tower of Babel is? Doesn't exist, right? So for the first time, what we see here is not a person making a mistake. A whole group of people have come together and have organized themselves to rebel against God. Like, we're going to do this as a team. We're not going to fulfill what God wants us to do. 
We're going to do something else that's on our own. Now, here's another thing I want to point out, too. When it comes to this idea of being scattered, I mentioned last week that the early books of Genesis mirror the later books, or the later books mirror the early books. So in the story of Nona, the first few chapters kind of mirror the creation story. The Noah's curse mirrors the curse of Adam and Eve. If we are following the same mirroring effect, who would the Tower of Babel mirror? Cain. Which is interesting because I want to read you this little section out of the story of Cain. This is verse 13, chapter 4 of Genesis. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you're driving me from the land. I'll be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. What does Cain not want? More than anything, doesn't want to be a wanderer. He wants to find a place where he can settle. And if, I don't know if you remember this, this was over a year ago, but Cain's name meant acquirer. He wanted to acquire land because for him, that land gave him security. That land gave him an occupation. That land gave him a name. That land gave him a heritage. And so he wanted to acquire this thing in that would give him all of those things. And the thing that he feared the most was that he would be out wandering and it's the very place God sends him. And all of a sudden, you kind of see a mirroring effect because that's exactly what happens with this group, this group of people. So what's going on here? Well, I think you could easily look at what Cain was doing and say Cain wanted to build just a little empire for himself. A little empire where he had some safety. An empire where he could place his security. Where he would know exactly, um, he was in control of it. No concerns, no worries, nothing like that would have been on his mind. And so Cain has built his little empire, and we see this group taking it to a new level. They decide to build a city for their security. They decide to build a tower where they would provide a place for God to come down and bless them. They're going to take care of it all. They're going to be in control. And you see the beginning of an empire-building system, and God steps in and says, I can't let this go on. See, we, we read this, and we think God looked at the project they were building and said, they can do any project together that they want to do. That's not what he was concerned about. Do you know what he was concerned about when he said nothing will be impossible for them? These people, if they organized together, could walk away from me permanently, could create a system where they think they have security, where they think they have the gods blessing them, where they think their name is great. They could actually pull off a system where they don't need me anymore, and I 
can't let that happen. It's worth noting, there are no words of punishment, no words of condemnation, no curse given in what God does. He does one thing. He confuses their language. Look, we know how difficult communication is, right? Communication is difficult wherever you go. It's difficult to communicate in your own family at times. It's difficult to communicate with a workplace or a sports team that you're with. Communication in general is difficult, but it's something that you, if you work really hard at, you can do well. And I don't understand why if this is the only thing that happens to them, their languages are different, could they not have pointed at a brick and said, this is what it means to, when I say brick, what does it mean when you say brick? Now we understand brick. Let's get back to working, right? But there's a problem with empire. Besides the fact that you want to build your own security, that you want to be in control, that you want all of that stuff to be true for you, there's another thing that's core to empire. They want it easy. I want the most simple, easy solution that I can find where I feel like I'm in control, I'm safe, I'm secure, and I have everything that I need. And when it became hard, they left each other. That was all it took. That was all it took to destroy their empire was to take away the ease of which they would have had to do to build it. Now, I bring all of this up. Because if I were to sit across from you and ask you, do you think you're building an empire? Most of us. Most of us would look at the stuff that we've done in our lives and the way that we as a culture talk about empire And we would say, I can't think of a time where I've taken over another country to expand my borders. Like, I can't think of a time where I've used violence to advance my cause. I can't think of a time where I've done anything like that. And we would say, no, I'm not really an empire builder. But if I I put it in these terms, have you ever seen anybody pursue life in a way that they were trying to achieve their own security, their own control, their own comfort at all costs. They were at the center, and they were out to achieve it. I think if I said it that way, most of us could look at other people and identify things that we saw in their lives. We could say, man, that person pursues power And everything that they can do to get more power, they do it. They're creating their own little empire. That that person pursues money. That person pursues family. Like it's so important. It's everything. Everything else would be cut out as they worship that thing. And you would be able to point at all kinds of people that are building their own little empires. You want to know how you know if you're building an empire or not? It just comes down to one simple question. 
Is there anything that you're doing in your life right now that you think you'd be better off if God just stayed away from it? I don't need you to touch this, God. I've got this under control because all of those areas where people get snagged, they conclude, I can do this on my own, and they set out to accomplish it. And their pursuit becomes the name that they're building. Their pursuit becomes the control that they use. And done long enough, God gets cut out of the picture, and that's exactly what was happening in this story. These people had decided that they would organize themselves together to not need God anymore. They could go get their own. They could create a place for their own God to come and worship. They could create a place for their own God to come and bless them. And God looked at that and said, man, I would rather you were confused than lost. You want to know what I think um, God wants from us? I think he wants us to step into the wild with him into places that are unknown and scary for us at times. Where we take a risk, where you don't know how it's going to turn out. You, you take a risk with your family. Maybe you take a risk with your career. Maybe you take a risk volunteering. You step into a world that you don't quite know and fully understand. Why? Because in the wild where you haven't settled, where you haven't become comfortable, you have to listen for the voice of God. You have to seek wisdom. You have to count on Him for your security. And as soon as you find ways to move Him out of the picture of your life, you have missed the lesson of Babel. Because you know what? It is not impossible for you to organize your life in such a way that you don't have a sense that you need God. And it's your loss. It will ultimately bring harm to you. And I do think it's possible that in that place, God could introduce confusion and disruption See, the other sections of Scripture where it says God is not a God of confusion, he, he'll strengthen those through Christ, that is talking to people who are following Jesus wholeheartedly. When you go with him into the wild where it's difficult and hard and unknown, he's there with you. Nothing's too much for you. When you decide to build your own empire, all of that goes away. So let me just ask you, just straight up. Is there any place in your life where you're building an empire right now? A place where ultimately you don't need God. That's the question of this story and I think it's worth wrestling with. Can I pray with you? God, I think um, 
of all the stories that I've had to prepare and to talk about out of the series, this one stings. Uh, because it's easy. Wow, it's so easy to build empire. So easy for me to be concerned about my ease and comfort, my security. Even, even while building a church community, community of followers of you, it's easy to find a way to do it on my own so I don't have to rely on you. God, we've grown up in a culture that believes this. We've learned from them. We've kind of integrated into our lives, and I just ask that you would help us to open our eyes and to see it, to see where we're doing things, making choices, making decisions that put us in a place where we don't need you anymore. In fact, we don't want you meddling with it. We've got it under control. We're set. We feel secure. But God, we're followers of you first. And I ask that you would give us that courage to follow. Follow you into places that are unknown. Follow you into the wild. Follow you into ministry. Follow you into volunteering with organizations and groups all around our community that stretch us past ourselves and cause us to rely on you. God, you're building a kingdom, and you want us to join you there, not build our own. I ask you to open our eyes to the little empires that we're building so that we can be honest about it and walk away from them before it's too late. Thank you for this warning. I ask you would help us to take it seriously. In Jesus' name, amen.